This show is sponsored by Get Your Money Together Bootcamp, Oh My Dollar's immersive online course that covers step-by-step everything you need to know to craft your money plan, including instructional videos and worksheets. To sign up and get started conquering your money, head to bootcamp.ohmydollar.com. Use code PODCAST for 15% off. Welcome to Oh My Dollar, a personal finance show with a dash of glitter. Dealing with money can be scary and stressful. Here we give practical, friendly advice about money that helps you tackle the financial overwhelm. I'm your host, Lillian Kerbake. And I'm Will, another host. <laughs> Let's talk about money. So our first question, or and our second question, and our third question, all come from Jody, uh, who asks, so assume your employer doesn't offer a retirement plan, so you're going to set one up on your own. The basic choices are a Roth or a traditional IRA, right? And I knew that in a Roth, you put money in after tax, and in a traditional IRA, you put money in pre-tax. But what I couldn't understand is how you actually got money into a traditional IRA pre-tax if it wasn't through your employer. Did you talk to your employer and ask them to send money to your personal IRA before taxes? Did whatever company you had your IRA through go do some magic to get your contributions before you paid taxes on them? How do you contribute post-tax money and then get a refund come tax time? How does getting money into something pre-tax actually work if it's not an automatic deduction from your employer? And why was I the only person who seemed confused by the mechanics of this? Oh, Jody, I'm so glad you asked this question because we've covered at length pre-tax and post-tax, but we haven't actually covered the mechanics of uh, the pre-tax IRA before, uh, which is the traditional IRA. So I'm so glad you asked this. And um, you are totally not the only person who seems confused by the mechanics of this. I think I understand the abstract concepts of IRA, but now that Jody mentions it, I don't know... uh... Yeah, <laughs> how it actually exa- works. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you asked this. Um, and uh, thank you for being brave enough to ask this because I feel like a lot of us feel like we should just magically understand all of this and that w- if we were real adults, we would know this. But um, turns out that this stuff is just confusing. Um, so the thing about the pre tax, the simplest thing to state is that with a pre tax, which is a traditional IRA, um, you actually, it's not. Even though I've said on the, on before that it is pre-tax treated, it's not exactly the same as an employer-sponsored plan like a 401k. So 401k, uh, traditional 401k is pre-tax as well, right? So it just comes effortlessly out of your paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple different ways to get it to come out of your paycheck if you have your own traditional IRA set up, but it actually isn't taken out and um, counted against your salary. So it'll actually get contributed after tax, even if you set up an automatic kind of dispersal. But at the end of the year, there is a very obvious line item on your taxes that says contributions to IRA. And that money will be considered pre-tax. So that will lower your overall taxes at the end of the year. Oh, so you're sort of refunded the taxes you paid on the IRA at the end of the year. Exactly. So there's a couple different ways that you can actually set up the mechanics of this. Um, One of the easiest is just simply to set up an IRA on your own and transfer the money from your checking account after you get your paycheck. Just set up an automatic transfer to happen. This is sort of the easiest because it doesn't involve your employer. Um, It's automatic. It's automatic. What I don't necessarily love about this is that for a lot of people, it becomes very, very tempting to just put a hold on that when when 
when things get complicated or if they just want a little extra cash flow that month. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's nice to have that flexibility. As, like, I'm someone with variable income, so some months I make big contributions and other months I don't make very much at all. Um, but I, the risk that you run when you're kind of totally in control of it is that uh, it loosens the <laughs> loosens kind of the friction of changing it for yourself um you can also ask your employer to essentially just to set up a payroll deduction ira for you and this is basically a retirement plan option that you control completely okay so that wouldn't be like going through an ira that your employer sets up this yeah. is just asking them to set up an ira for for you. Um, so you would do the setting up of your IRA. You'd go pick the institution that you want to set up your traditional IRA at. However, um, there's usually a form that you can fill out both on the employer side and on the side of your banking institution that gives your employer uh, permission to take some of your paycheck and automatically send it to your IRA. And it's essentially just a piece of paperwork that says, yes, I give this, I give my employer permission to give to my account in my name. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's that's all it is. You don't get any um you don't get any direct tax benefits from this. This doesn't mean that this money gets contributed um pre-tax the same way as a 401k does. It's still going to come out at the end of the year on your taxes. It 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 waits till the end of the year regardless. Um but it can be a nice way to kind of do it effortlessly. Um so you know, it you, that money never hits your paycheck. So you don't right. you okay. don't you won't get tempted by it. Um, and it's being treated as the same way that your contribution to an IRA, however, would be treated. Yes, okay. exactly. Cool. Um, there's another way to do this. So if your employer, if you work at a small employer, they might just not have the, like, I've never worked anywhere that actually has an HR department, right? Mm. Like, I've worked somewhere where someone, someone pl- sometimes plays HR. Yeah, they put on an HR hat once yeah, a week. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, at really small firms, they might just not have the ability to do this. This might be too much work for them. Or perhaps the place where you have your IRA doesn't have this form for some reason. They should, but maybe they don't. Um, You usually can set up, you can kind of DIY this and do a direct deposit arrangement with your IRA provider. So um, most IRA providers can actually receive funds as a direct deposit, just like your checking account can, right? So usually you get- Right, because it's just another account. It's just another account. And almost all employers will let you do direct deposit will, that will let you split your cha- paycheck among multiple bank accounts. This is actually a crafty way to do just cash savings if you want. You can actually split your paycheck and say, hey, I always want 20% of my paycheck to go into this savings account. Hmm. You can do the same with an IRA. I never thought as of a direct deposit having more use than saving me a trip to the bank every other week. Yeah, yeah. Well, it could save you theoretically even more, you know, kind of effort. Um, uh, I do want to mention very briefly two things about this. One, um, you know, you're not getting these the kind of tax benefits that you you in the end, you'll get these tax benefits, but you don't in every paycheck. One way to kind of avoid that is you can adjust your withholdings so you can actually run the math and you could um, lower your withholdings if you're actually doing a lot of contribution to your IRA and you know that you'll get money back on your taxes. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Oh, yeah. Oh, because yes, because you're. Because you're essentially because you're withholding, so the amount of taxes that they calculate, which is based on the number mm-hmm. of dependents you have, right? Because and the your IRA income. contributions will 
will overall lower your total income for the year. Awesome. So so that's a way you can adjust it. We've talked about this before when it comes to um, if you have contract income, like 1099 income and a W-2 job. Yeah, you can add. You can actually withhold more from your W-2 job. Well, this would be the opposite way. You'd say, hey, actually, I know I'm going to save a lot on taxes at the end of the year. So I'm going to lower my withholdings. That's so interesting. Okay. Like um, that so idea. that's a way that you can do it. You should run the numbers. There's plenty of calculators online. Um, that you can, you know, kind of figure it out. Um, there's one last exception to this. I usually don't talk about this type of IRA when I talk about IRAs because there's n- um, very few people that have it. The Irish but- Republican Army. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we will we will not dive into foreign politics on this show. Um, <laughs> but the simple IRA is a special type of IRA account, and this is the one exception. This is actually an employer-sponsored IRA. So it kind of defies the idea of an independent retirement arrangement, which mm-hmm. is what IRA stands for. A lot of people think it stands for account. Technically, it stands for arrangement, but I always oh, call it account. Because um, it's actually just about the tax treatment that the money gets. It's not technically an account. But what's most important to know about the simple is that it does have these tax benefits built in. Um, also, I think we've mentioned this on the show before, but this is something your employer sets up and they're required to give contributions to. So um, unlike a 401k where at any time it, it costs some money, but they they could redo their plan and adjust how much they're contributing upward or downward. Yeah. Um, and, and often it's nothing the, in this day and age. A simple, they legally have a requirement to um, over the course of a three year average, um, give at least two percent of your paycheck. Okay, and that's to, pretty good that's... to a simple IRA. Yeah, I mean, it's not like the eight and fifteen percent matches we used to see in the pre recession days, but I wouldn't know about that. Um, <laughs> but it's better than nothing. So yeah. So huh. I hope that I hope that answers questions for Jody and for everyone else. Um, essentially, IRA. Quite simply, um, you get the money back when you do your taxes. Mm-hmm. No, and that answered questions I don't think I was aware of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel I like the mechanics are much more clear. I feel like that's a common theme on the show is like, oh, I answered your question and I answered a bunch of stuff <laughs> you didn't even know you didn't know. <laughs> okay, so our next question comes from Stephen. And Stephen asks, how do I decide what debt to work on eliminating? What is good debt versus bad debt? I view good debt as an investment that will grow in value, like a home or college loan. And bad debt is incurred to purchase stuff that loses value. That's interesting. Yeah. So this is a place where my beliefs, this is kind of one of the most biased things that I'm going to give you on the show. Um, generally, I stick to very, you know, common sense, practical advice. Um, but I've I've talked in the past about how I don't really view money as moral or amoral. And I think that debt is in the same camp. Debt is not moral. It isn't good or bad. I want folks to remember that the framing of debt as good and bad is actually a marketing tool sold by banks, right? Mm -hmm. The banking is an industry and debt is their most profitable product that they sell. Um, There's some exceptions. It's true in business, large businesses, that debt can be a leverage tool. In general, debt in your personal life is rarely much more than a product. It's making money for someone else. So, you know, one of the ways to kind of think about this is to look around at the people around you, literally and figuratively. And often what you're looking at, is, if you just scratch the surface a little bit, is an unquestioning acceptance of the most dangerous obstacle to building wealth, which is debt. And 
For marketers, debt is an incredibly powerful tool. It lets you buy things that you can't afford, and it lets them sell products and services more easily and for more money than if it didn't exist. So a lot of the traditional thinking around this framing of good debt or bad debt, which I want to emphasize <laughs> the framing of good debt or bad debt is is sold by financiers. So traditionally, it used to be college educations was good debt, student loans, and home mortgages were good debt. Car loans were bad debt because you're taking out a, a loan for something that depreciates in value. And credit cards are bad debt because um, you're buying a bunch of consumer goods that don't retain their value, right? Generally, mm -hmm. almost anything you buy on a credit card is not going to retain its value. Um, I'm not going to cover business loans because that's a, a much different show. But um, one of the things you should know is generally, if you are at any stage of a small business, uh, your business debt is the same as your personal debt. You are yeah. one and the same. I think you remember, I remember you mentioning that last show. Um, yeah. So there literally is no... Uh, no official disambiguation between good debt there's there's no there's just simply there is one official term and this is one that i will agree on which is unsecured and secured debt mm -hmm. and we've talked about this before but it essentially means is there something tied to the debt can they take something away if you don't pay the debt so this is your collateral right right your new beamer your new beamer or they right come from my shrimping boat so um you know traditionally the idea is bad debt would be car debt but um, if you look at secured versus unsecured, at least it's secured, which means that there is a physical thing they can take away. Um, student loan debt, which is, you know, been framed as good debt, is is unsecured. They're not going to come suck your education out of your brain. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so th this is the big thing that I want to emphasize when it comes to good debt or bad debt. Do you really think that the average cost of a new car would be pushing $40,000 if there wasn't car loans? <laughs> no, yeah, it seems unlikely. <laughs> and and student loans, which which is essentially student loans is the reason my generation is not building wealth. Like student loans is the biggest problem for my ge generation. And so buying into this myth that student loans is good debt and that, that you know, it's acceptable on all terms. Do you really think that college education would cost over $100,000 now to get a four year education if there weren't readily available student loans? Prior to student loans being something that was available and government backed, you know, it was a lot cheaper to go to college. And I'm not going to necessarily talk about that. There there have been some good parts of the policies of making financing available to students that otherwise wouldn't have been able to afford it with mm -hmm. family resources. But when I'm talking about your choice as as an adult to get into or to pay off debt, I want you to think about is I want you to not frame it as good or bad debt. I, I want you to generally see most of it as what it is. It's an impedance to you building wealth, right? If you're paying out payments and you're paying interest on them, it is really hard to build wealth right, over the long the, term. Yeah, that's the opposite of wealth, so exactly. far as I understand it. <laughs> um, negative negative signs instead of positive signs. Yeah, and 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 so essentially, like it, I, one of the th frustrating things for me is that Easily obtained student loans have just flooded the system with money and universities continue to build and the fancier prices require fancier settings. And the average salary of a university president in the 1970s was twenty five to thirty thousand dollars. Today, it averages around five hundred thousand dollars and can run into the millions. And to be clear, that is way index past inflation. <laughs> yep. Yep. I don't know my inflation rates, but uh, that's uh, not quite that. <laughs> 
getting back to Stephen's oh, initial geez. question, how do I decide what debt to work on eliminating? Oh, yeah. I mean, what, what comes to mind is going back to the, the snowball versus the avalanche method. Yeah. Uh, so, so Stephen, you know, you, you asked what is good debt versus bad debt. And I wanted to make sure that when we were framing debt, we weren't framing it as good or bad. But uh, how do I decide which debt to work on eliminating has nothing to do with good versus bad. Uh, there's one simple answer there which is interest rate. (laughs) Um, And you can either do interest rate or amount. We've talked about this in the past. uh, I think two episodes ago, we walked through the debt snowball and the debt avalanche. But I don't want you to want you to make your decisions based on the morality of the debt, right? (laughs) I want you to make your decisions based on either the amount because you want to build up that that those small wins in the beginning. So if you have a lot of smaller debts, the debt um, I think the debt snowball is really great, which is where you pay the smallest amount first so you can build up momentum. This is also really good if you have a lot of minimum payments. So if you've got a ton of student loans, you know, from a bunch of different vendors and you just you're kind of drowning under the minimum payments when you're trying to find a way to systematically attack these, the debt snowball can be great because it'll reduce the number of minimum payments that you have to deal with. The alternative one, which actually is the most most mathematically correct, yeah, you'll is pay the, the least for it, yeah. is the debt avalanche, and the debt avalanche is um, exactly what it sounds like. It is a lets you build up a lot of momentum at once because you attack the highest interest rate, and the highest interest rate is costing you the most money over the long term, right? So um, one place where, you know, you might be in the situation where the debt snowball and the debt avalanche are identical for you. (laughs) Uh, A lot of the times uh, the smallest balance might actually also be the highest interest rate. You might have a thousand dollars on a credit card, but it has a 20 percent interest rate. And so there you go. That's easy. The best case scenario in a lot of ways. And Uh, it's often true for people. A lot of people get really caught up on this before they run the numbers (laughs) and they don't realize that actually both methods are the same. Um, so this is why sitting down and writing down who you owe and what you owe is the f- most important first step. Um, and I have uh, at ohmydollar.com slash debt, um, you can get the debt tool that I have to essentially, it's just a sheet of paper to write it down um, and kind of walks you through the two different methods. Or uh, I really like the website and I get no kickbacks from this, but I really like the website undebt.it, undebt it. Um, and that's essentially a electronic version of a debt snowball spreadsheet. Cool. So yeah, run the numbers. Yeah, run the numbers is the answer. And don't get caught up in morality. <laughs> that wraps our show for today. Our producer is Will Romy. Our intro music is by Aaron Parecki. And I'm Lillian Kerbake, your personal finance educator and host. Thanks for listening. Until next time, remember to manage your money so it doesn't manage you. <laughs> <laughs>